Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. This week, we want to talk about long-term care. How do you pay for that, that possible scenario? All of us won't be confronted with this, but many of us will. Probably po- a probable scenario. Okay, probable. <laughs> it's a probable scenario that we will be living in some sort of health care facility for some period of time. And it could be simply assisted living. But it very well could be skilled care. And this is something that becomes more and more probable as we age because our technology increases. We're living longer, but it doesn't mean that we're living longer in a fully functional way. So there's a lot of change in the medical care industry. And I think that all of us are well advised to simply plan on the possibility that we'll spend some period of time in some sort of long-term care. Well, that's right. And we don't know exactly how long, but one thing we do know for sure is that it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be um, inexpensive, but it is probably going to be necessary. And so when you look at the average cost being something like $45,000 or something like that each year, most people may not be spending that much on just living at home. Yeah, and, and there, are, um, there, there are ways that you can try to stay at home. I mean, I know that many people have that as a priority. Oh, sure, and we've talked about a lot of those options. You make modifications to your house. You make modifications to certain things, but it's not always possible. It's not always possible, and it can be very expensive, believe it or not. Some people think that staying in a nursing home, for example, is expensive. Well, it can be more expensive to have care at home 24-7, mm-hmm. which is often the alternative. And even if it's not 24-7, even if it's simply 16 hours a day, maybe five to six days a week, uh, some people can take some time out and provide some care themselves. Still, if you do the math on what the average cost for that sort of care is, because some of that will be skilled care. Mm-hmm. And then even the unskilled care, you're paying 22 to $23 per hour mm-hmm. for every hour that one person is there. Yeah, and you have to include things like sleeping hours and things like that because you've obviously got to provide care for those times in the middle of the night when someone wakes up or needs to use the facilities or something like that. So assisted living, just to give us a sense of what are, what's the kind of money we're talking about here. Assisted living, easily two to $5,000 monthly. And if you live in the St. Louis area, it's probably going to be closer to 5000 mm-hmm. a month. And that number's going up. Nursing home care, I mean, St. Louis, we had somebody who just got a bill from their, the, the place where they're staying here in St. Louis is around 12000 a mm-hmm. little over $12,000 a month. So you can spend easily eight to twelve for quality care. Now, if you're in rural Missouri, you can get below eight right mm-hmm. now. But how long will that last? And incidentally, what is the quality of care? Well, exactly. And, you know, I will tell you, just because you're in a small town doesn't mean that it's not going to be expensive. For example, I know someone who was in a facility in Joplin, Missouri, not one of the biggest cities in Missouri, and his long-term care was 9500 every month. And that's Joplin. And that's Joplin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
I think that when we're doing our budgeting realistically, you should expect to spend 12 to 15 by the time that you would actually need the care. This will vary, of course, given your age. But I think for purposes of our discussions here and perhaps your planning, you might assume 12 to 15 could be the number you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So what are the possibilities to pay for this? Well, there are several. I mean, let's kind of walk through it and talk what talk about what some of those things uh, might be. Okay, well, so well, I was going to say I think of often long term care insurance. Yeah, long term care. Long term care is um, insurance is a possibility. I can tell you that the number of long term care providers has gone down dramatically. Last time I checked, there was one national company providing long term care insurance. Those that did at the turn of the century now, uh, at this point, are struggling with even staying alive. There are several that have had to file Chapter 11. Some have spun off their commitments on these policies to a subsidiary in order to keep the parent company healthy, uh, which doesn't bode well for those who are going to be counting on the funding, being in those subsidiaries to meet their needs. But the, the bottom line is I don't want to demonize the institutions that find themselves in this situation. These insurance companies simply didn't have the information to know. Well, and they probably relied on actuarial tables and things like that where maybe the lifespan was not quite so long yeah. when they first introduced the policy. And that's kind of the beauty of long-term care insurance policies is you buy it when you're healthier and the thought is you pay for an extended period of time and then when you need it, it's there. But the people have, are living longer. Costs for long-term care facilities is a lot more than maybe people anticipated. And, and you know, and technology has been a big factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the rates of inflation of various sectors, and you see that the healthcare sector, the rate of inflation is far above that of the economy in general. And in part, in fairness, some of that inflation regards things that weren't possible years ago. So it's not so much that a given care for a given thing has gone up, it's like now we can do something we couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. So really it's new technology. It's always difficult to measure inflation for that reason because it often includes things that simply weren't available before. So in fairness, it's not really an increase in the cost of that same thing. Mm-hmm. It's something new. So there's a lot of these new things, especially with pharmacology. Well, I was just going to bring up drugs. I, mean, yeah. I can tell you I know someone – who has a drug and every month that drug is about $5,000. It's a new drug. It's a biologic. It's one of these that you see advertised with all of the really cute pictures and all of that. Mm-hmm. You think it's going to solve every problem that you ever had, but it's around 5000 a month. Well, you see, it doesn't take long to get to an, a very expensive point of view on that. And, and you're hearing about some of these targeted cancer drugs are 100000 mm-hmm. per dose. Yep. Even though you may just need a few doses, still, it's just incredibly expensive. And, and again, I'm less inclined to accuse the, the, the pharmacies, pharmacy companies or pharmacological companies of, of profiteering. Um, I think that, yeah, they want to make a good profit. But I think that there's so much research that goes in to developing these drugs and the regulatory hurdles they have mm-hmm. to get over, which have been reduced, incidentally, in the last year and a half or so. But still, these regulatory hurdles, there's just a ton of expense. And I think that's part of it. And, and certainly, um, you know, there needs to be competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you know, these, these companies, Big Pharma, as they call them, is simply capable of naming its price because this is life or death. Mm-hmm. People will sell their homes. They'll do anything they can do to pay it. And, and so I think that it's good that we keep an eye on, on the um, 
abuse mm-hmm. of this market position mm-hmm. that can exist above. And I'm a libertarian by nature, <laughs> but but I do see flaws in a free enterprise system, uh, at least without some rules. Anyway, um, another thing, we can't fail to mention private pay. Right. There are people whose intention is to pay for it out of pocket. And they may be betting, incidentally, that their long-term care costs they can pay for because they're betting it won't be more than the average stay. The average stay right now in a long-term care facility, in a skilled care facility, is around two years and eight months. Mm-hmm. Last I checked, that was within the last year. So if you do the math, what might that run? Well, at $10,000 a month, that's 280 months, mm-hmm. uh, like 24 plus eight. So it's 320, $320,000. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so. Some people are listening and swallowing hard and thinking, <laughs> "Oh my gosh," and and others though are are thinking that, "Oh, okay." So, I'll sell my house and I'll be good. Yeah, this probably won't happen, but if it does happen, I'll deal with it. So we can't fail to talk about private pay. I mean, private pay is a very realistic option for some people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do the math and they figure, okay, the average stay is about two years and eight months. And the last time I checked, it's that give or take a month or two. So if you do the math and you assume, say, ten thousand a month, mm-hmm. so they may think, okay, three hundred twenty thousand dollars, thirty-two months. And and I get it. For some people, that is realistic. And remember, they're not assuming that they definitely will pay that much. They're assuming it's possible. And these people are a little, um, little bit of a risk-taking personality because I think that they. They think, look, I may dodge this bullet entirely. Right. Because really there's a compound risk there. One one is that I may not go at all. So that there is that possibility. And then, of course, they're saying even if I go, I'm going to be no more than the average. Right. You know, that's assuming a lot. Right. Given the nature of trends and what we talked about with the technology and pharma and all that. So – uh, I don't know that that's a good strategy unless you're willing to spend the money out of pocket and that you have the capability of spending more if you need to. What do you think about these people that often, and here's one that I hear often, is, well, my kids will help take care of me. Yeah. Yeah, that's, see, that's kind of private pay, but that's kind of private family too. Yeah, and I can tell you that um, in my former life as a divorce lawyer, I can tell you that that can sometimes put strain on marriages when one of the one set of in-laws may Mm -hmm. require a lot of money, money that's going to come out of the retirement fund of their children and their the children's spouse. So I I think that's a bad strategy. Mm -hmm. It really is. It it's taking a lot for granted. Now, incidentally, let me hurry to add that I think children have a duty to support their parents. Mm -hmm. And if it requires having their parents move in with them, that may cause stress in a marriage too. But that simply means that that in this marriage, the partners do not agree about an important philosophical thing. Mm -hmm. And that's one's duty to their parents. Uh, I would like to think that husband and wife have agreed that we're going to honor our parents to the day of their death. It's not ideal to have them move in. I get that. Uh, it's not something that typically would be a first choice for them either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that it's a shame if it is true that children now do not want to help their parents much right. when they get old. Right. And there will or may become or may come that time where it becomes too difficult for them mm-hmm. to continue to live with family 
and they would require too much care or it becomes cost prohibitive as well. Well, one thing that we should talk about uh, briefly, at least, is not th- this isn't my area of expertise, uh, but it's kind of the elephant in the room to the extent that we're talking about paying for long term care. And that's where do we place our money? Uh, what sort of return can we expect on our money? Uh, will our money have value in another 10, 15, 20 years? Because mm-hmm. I'm making the assumption that the people who are listening to this show are not people who are looking at retirement or long-term care 50 years from now. Now, if you fit that description, it's fine. You can continue listening. But I can tell you this show is designed for people who are at that threshold, people who are in their late 50s, especially or in their 60s, their 70s, people for whom this is a more imminent concern. And for these people, they must be looking at this market right now, mm-hmm. which is really chaotic. Mm-hmm. And they're wondering what lies ahead when you're seeing the Dow plunge almost a thousand points in a day, and you've seen a trend over the past several weeks that have been generally downward. Um, there's been this this experiment, this grand global experiment with central banks printing money in a way that has never been done before. This is purely um, a speculative venture, I can tell you, because there are no records, no points of reference for these presidents of central banks and our Federal Reserve Bank to be able to know for sure that what they're doing is a safe and wise thing. It simply hasn't been done before. And, and yet and, they're doing it anyway. Well, it, well, this was pulled out of necessity, it would be argued, in, in 08. Mm-hmm. It was felt that, gee, the world's going to crumble if we don't do something dramatic. And, and the, the dramatic rescue plan was one that we dropped interest rates incredibly low, um, we started making funds available at a level that that had never been pumped into the system before, quantitative easing. So, so all these these uh, efforts on the part of central banks create some uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're in your sixties, seventies, eighties, you know, you're beginning to wonder where can I safely put my money. If you watch financial shows, you you'll hear people like Kramer uh, saying. Well, it's safe. I think that there's not a bear market around the corner, in my opinion. But I, but then he hedges his bet and said a lot of people disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when Kramer starts saying that, and many people are familiar with this show on CNBC, um, when he starts saying that, it does suggest that maybe there are clouds on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So I think for us to, to do this this show as we do, Susan, and to not acknowledge that this is an important factor in people's planning. We're not a financial planning show. We're not an investment show. But I do feel an obligation, especially when we're talking about long-term care, to acknowledge these issues and to talk about it for a few minutes. And and I want to, to kind of just give you my thoughts on it as somebody who's not a professional money manager, but I do follow these things, mm-hmm. as many of you do, our listeners. But I think that because there's such a difficulty in predicting what the equities will do. When I say equities, I just mean, you know, the stock market, the the Dow, the S&P, all those securities in which you can invest in companies and own a part of them. Those are the things that I think are at a lot of risk. The bond market now, 
uh, bond prices are so high because people are running from equities to mm-hmm. to the bonds, and they feel, gee, this is a safer place. But you have to question those ratings. We knew all we know already that the rating services are are not reliable. We know they can't be trusted because they're paid by the companies who are issuing the bonds. They're getting their payment from them, and if they're about to give the bonds a lower rating, then they're going to shop and go to one of their competitors. So it's simply a fact that that the ratings, when you see even a triple A, you have to wonder. But even at like a triple B, you have to wonder, especially because this is probably somebody who shopped it and they wanted to avoid what would be a junk bond rating. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're thinking about bonds, you need to recognize that if you're paying a premium above the face, then it means your rate of return is much lower. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but I think many of you know that if it's a $1,000 bond and because the people are willing to settle for a lower interest rate, they'll right now buy that bond for 1100 or 1200 and they're okay with a lower return because it's a good return right now. Mm-hmm. And that bond, though, may very well end up selling for face value if you hold it and turn it in. That means you've lost whatever you paid above the bond. So I'm just uncomfortable with a bond market where prices are selling at premiums as they are. And I'm uncomfortable, apart from that point, I'm uncomfortable with how reliable it is that that bond will be good when it comes time to get payment. So I think that as as mundane as it sounds, uh, safe, interest-bearing accounts that are federally insured, and there are a lot of those now, and the numbers uh, that you have funds insured for has gone up, and I don't remember exactly what it is now, but I think it's 500000 or so. It was north of two fifty anyway. But the point is you can put money in several accounts and you know it's insured. Now I know that that this is a is something that many people simply can't bring themselves to do because they're earning one, one and a half, two mm-hmm. percent interest. But for those of you who are in the situation we're describing now, I think it's the safe place to be. Otherwise you risk uh, what occurred in oh eight. What if the amount of money that you have today in 12 months, call it a million dollars that you have saved. And some of you do in various accounts, including 401ks, et cetera. What if 12 months from now you have 500000 Yeah, which and, is and, what happened. And that is what happened. Mm-hmm. And those, though, who had the ability to hang in there and wait for it to come back, then they're fine today. You're fine today because of that. But you don't have the luxury of getting to do that again. Well, and one of the things that I was, an article that I was reading recently recommended having some cash on hand. So is that something you would recommend? I mean, this article rep- uh, recommended having about two years worth of living expenses just on hand in case things drop out again. Well, that's essentially what I'm saying is that level of liquidity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's completely liquid. It's not a treasury. It's just money that's available and insured. Even a short-term treasury would be okay as long as you're not paying any premiums. But the point is... I just think that that to to do the things that would have been wise and that you did do when you were younger, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, I mean, that strategy was wise when you did it. And and if I were talking to such a person, I'd be saying to them, yeah, you assume some risk. You know, you participate in the equities. It's questionable now. If, if, if I did suggest, as I personally have done, I pull my money out of equities, but I intend to go back. But, but I'm having a little bit of a different conversation with those who are a little older because for them, 
it's simply not worth the risk. Now, if we were in, you know, rapidly rising inflation, if we were looking at the inflation, like all of you listening know that what the seventies, what I mean, fourteen percent double digit inflation, the Carter era. Um, Well, you know, we don't see signs of that right now. Now it may return, but it doesn't now. So the cost of holding your money is there may be some opportunity costs, which that troubles some people more than others. You know, the the idea of fear of missing out, Uh, but. But I don't think that there's a, a fear that you're going to lose a lot of purchasing power. That's something different. And and if you, I know the CPI has its flaws. The consumer price index, I'm convinced, is not fully accurate. I think inflation is probably a little higher than what that's telling us, which has it now in the area of two percent. But I think that um, that even if it is a little above that, I think the lesser evil um, is to is to pull out, get in a safe intersparing account. And that way you know that you have your money, whatever happens in this crazy economy right now. And it is very difficult to predict. I, I'm a fan of gold, and I have been for a while, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm happy right now with my gold investments. <laughs> uh, but, but most of all now, I want to be on the sidelines. And I think, I think that that's, that's wise advice. So um, we'll, we'll kind of steer back on. We took that little bit of an exit in talking about how do you pay for long-term care because I, I really want want you to think about it before you continue investing as you traditionally have and as was traditionally wise and smart. I think that it's important now for you to realize you're in a different circumstance in a variety of ways, and it may make more sense to, to have the money safely placed on a shelf. Well, and especially if your plan is to pay for long-term care out of your personal expenses. Out of pocket. You know, just like what we were talking about. So what would maybe perhaps be another option on paying for long-term care? Um, I think of, obviously, government programs. Well, and most most of our audience, they don't acknowledge that there may be some government programs. That, I, I heard the click. Eh, yeah, not me. <laughs> yeah, I don't qualify for that. Well, we've talked a lot before on the show about if you're middle class, you're really in the most difficult position in this conversation because if you're poor, you know that you're going to qualify for a number of these programs, especially Medicaid. Medicaid is the most prominent go-to resource for paying for long-term care because unlike Medicare, Medicaid is designed for this purpose. So it, it will pay for those long-term care costs. Um, if you're wealthy, of course, we talked about that. You write a check every month. But, it, but if you're in the middle class – that large on a bell curve, that large bulge in the mm-hmm. middle, you're the ones who have traditionally paid for the programs, and you've not had a lot of the, the luxury of certain tax breaks and, and income that the wealthy have had. So really, you have funded a lot of the cost of this economy, and you've not reaped, some would argue, as much benefit as you should. Well, I think anybody who's informed will argue that because we know – at the rate at which we've, we've seen the distribution of wealth over the last 20, 25, 30 years, worsened incidentally by the policy since 08, mm-hmm. is that uh, the wealthy have become wealthier. And, and again, I'm not a critic of that as long as it's a, it is a fair economy where people have a chance to pursue their own entrepreneurial ventures and other things, and if that's the way it shakes out. But the fact is the deck is rigged now, and it is more favorable to people who have money and whose 
main source of wealth is through financial institutions and financial assets, because that's where most of the money's gone the last 10 years. But for those in the middle class, for the most part, they don't have access right. to those investments. So many of you are wondering, well, I, I now know that I only have, say, five or $600,000 saved up, that it's not what I had planned. Furthermore, now you tell me that I shouldn't try to get great levels of return. <laughs> so this is not a promising picture. I'd hoped uh, after working all these years that I could leave something for my children, maybe especially my grandchildren, to help pay for their college. And, and how do I pay for long-term care without having to liquidate everything I've accumulated? And, and I can say to you that Medicaid actually is a potential solution. Now, anybody who says that, that, that there is an, an easy solution to paying for something that is very expensive, then you should raise an eyebrow. You mm-hmm. should have some suspicions because generally there are some strings attached to any solution that, that seems too good to be true. There's no free lunch. Yeah, there's no free lunch. And, and I can say this about Medicare or Medicaid. Medicaid is something that that will pay long-term care. You can have assets to do it, but you have to plan, and you have to plan in advance, and you have to be willing to take some steps that might reduce a little bit your freedom of movement with some of your assets. So, for example, let's assume that you have $500,000 in assets and that you and your wife are reasonably healthy or that you expect that you might be able to avoid long-term care for, say, 60 months. So if that were true, then it is possible for you to transfer assets into a certain type of irrevocable trust. Some have called it a Medicaid trust, but it's a type of irrevocable trust. Mm -hmm. And, And with that, you lose some measure of control of those assets. So it might be that someone will use the $600,000 example. It might be that that person is prepared to transfer, say, 300000 and live with certain restrictions. They can't have the sort of access to that money that they had before because that would be too good to be true, right? Mm-hmm. That would be one of those solutions that you should question. Is that legal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in order to comply with the law, and it kind of, this kind of makes sense, if you actually give up your direct control, at least the way you've had it in the past, to certain portions of your assets, then it is fair to say that you don't have those assets in the way you had them before. So it's not, it's not a shell game. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a reality that you have less control. So anybody who's talking to you about planning for long-term care in a way that you can preserve your assets for your loved ones, and they suggest that that you can do that without any concessions or limitations, you should steer clear of that person because it is too good to be true, and, and it's not going to be consistent with the law, at least anything that I've ever heard of. So can we take a little step back? In your example, you said $600,000 and you transferred $300,000. So that means you're free to live on that other $300,000. I think sometimes people feel like it's an all or nothing Mm -hmm. kind of a scenario. And what you've just laid out is not quite all or nothing. Yeah, it's really like insurance. Uh, That's one way to think about it is it's like you keep the premiums that you otherwise would have used to pay for long-term care. You've kept that out of the trust. So those premiums, okay. if you don't end up needing to use them for your long-term care, then guess what? You live on them. So it's like the best of all worlds. It's your premiums that if you don't need it, then you don't end up using the money. 
Now, in fact, it's not insurance, and you do actually pay dollar for dollar what those costs are in that case, but that's only the money that you kept out. Mm-hmm. So that's in that case, I'm analogizing it to a premiums for your mm-hmm. long-term care, just a way to think about it. Uh, so that money, in other words, is at risk. So the 300000 in our example that you keep out of the trust, yes, you can do anything you want with it. it nothing has changed. Uh, and, and you might say, but does that mean it's at risk if I long, go into long-term care? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. That's at risk. Uh, but but what you've done is you have hedged your bets. So remember, there is a chance you'll never have those long-term care costs. But what if it does happen? Well, if it does happen, you still have the 300 that you transferred into the irrevocable trust. Now, something better, Susan, than you might think is that it's not it's not true that you can't have any benefits from it. It's true that you can't reach in and use the principal as you previously could. But you can, if it's, if it's created properly, you can have, for example, access to the income. Oh. And income may occur in a number of different ways. It can occur in the form of dividends. Mm-hmm. It can occur in the form of interest. Um, but And also remember that, that that income now, while it is a – Low percentages, many of us are thinking, well, yeah, but dividends and interest now is not too good. (laughs) Not very good. Well, but for one thing, it is income, and it's the same income you would have presumably if you didn't have it inside this trust. But also keep in mind that where we are now is not going to be this way forever. Right. So as I talked about, you know, this this great uncertainty right now, and yeah, there could be some catastrophic events in the near future, it doesn't mean that for the balance of your life there won't be opportunities to earn a substantial amount of income with, with your investments. So um, many people are, in fact, would never have touched that principle. And I can tell you statistically this is true, Mm -hmm. that I've planned for a lot of people, and I can tell you that many people have this just irresistible need to have the ability to reach in and grab their principle when they want it. So some people avoid long-term planning using trust because they they just feel like I may want to reach in and grab it. But I can tell you they go out of this world, as I've followed them over the years, Mm -hmm. they go out of this world, and those accounts are still there. They never use them. They live on their income. Their Social Security, some of them have traditional pensions, Mm -hmm. but they also live on whatever income, whether it's good or great, that may be generated from their investments. Most people do not ever reach in and use the principal of these accounts. Just statistically is all I'm saying. I'm talking about middle-class people. It's not to say that you won't, but... Yeah. So, So my point is... If you acknowledge that, then maybe it makes sense to take some portion of your net worth, place it in this trust, and then be prepared to settle for having income from from those assets but not touching the principal. And incidentally, I didn't mention the fact that some assets by their nature you don't reach in and grab. And I'm talking about, for example, your residence. Some people think, oh, it's okay on the residence because I know that that uh, your house is exempt. Well – Yes and no. It's not exempt in the way you probably think it's exempt. It's exempt meaning that that you don't lose it when you go in for long-term care, if you have a spouse living in it, if um, if you have some hope of returning to it, which is liberally defined. Mm-hmm. Then, then, yeah, it's true you won't lose it then, but guess what? You will lose it. By that I mean uh, the, the government now, states under strict orders from the federal government, 
has a duty now to go after these assets when you pass away to be sure it's called asset recovery to be sure that they they follow these through probate they assure they're sold and they get the money back that they paid in benefits to you so you do end up losing the house in effect if you do draw benefits and you have not sold the house and paid for those benefits so it, it's um, exempt should be in quotations with an asterisk. Exempt only while you're alive. Yeah, yeah. And so, but let me say this though: if you if you transfer into the trust the residence, and you make it for a five year period of time, remember, I I don't want you to to fail to think about that in this conversation. We are assuming that this sixty month look back period is met, which many people can or they can get close to it. And if you get close enough, it means you pay for the shortfall. I mean, you pay for those mm, months right. to get you to the 60. But but it's not like you lose everything then. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, correct. So so think about the house. Now, what's different? You, you live in your house before you put it in the trust. You put it in the trust, you still live in the house. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much like before. Right. It, it's not a matter of having an account on that you are going to reach in and grab principal. Now, some may be thinking, well, yeah, but I may want to sell my house and take the principal out and go out and spend that. Okay, then that's a problem. Right. <laughs> but but I'm trying to create alternatives or options for you that, that w- within the bounds of what's reasonable, it, sh- it should be something you would consider at least. Okay, so let me just lay out this scenario just to make sure that I have it all right. Let's say you're 65 just coming up to that retirement th- that retirement time, you think, I have no plans of moving. I like my house. It's paid for. I might raise my kids here. I can take that house, put it in the trust, and then live there until the day I die or until the day I have to move out, whatever. And then my kids can sell the house and have the proceeds. Yes. And in the meantime, if along the way you have to go into long-term care, Mm-hmm. then that house is not an available resource because you don't own it. So you've given your kids an inheritance, and you haven't done anything differently. That's correct. And and now, uh, keep in mind, you can't reach in and pull money out. Right. So um, you couldn't get an equity loan right, or something like right. that. You can't undo this because that's the whole point. It's supposed to be irrevocable. So um, remember, this is not something that, that is a loophole. This is something that is clearly within the rules, but you have to follow the rules and do it right. And in my approach, and I suggest the it should be the approach of any practitioner in this area, is to practice conservatively. Don't make you, the client, the experiment <laughs> to see if this is something that will be challenged and ends up after much litigation Nobody being ruled favorably. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's not an outcome that you want to know posthumously that your case was successful. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact is it's better to practice conservatively and to live by the rules. And anybody who suggests that in planning for Medicaid that you can, you can still have all the benefits of, of ownership without these, these reasonable limitations that I just described to you, you should be suspicious of that. Are there any other things that we should kind of watch out for um, when talking to someone? What are some, I mean, that sounds like a really obvious one about, oh, mm-hmm. you, you can have your cake and eat it too. But are there other kind of things where you go, well, if somebody's trying to pre- present this as a good option, do I really want to go down that road? Well, uh, there, are, there are people who try to set up trusts that you can, for example, 
choose to to eliminate or dissolve when you want. And and those those sorts of efforts where they create deliberately back doors for you to get your money back, you should be suspicious of that. That's probably not going to meet federal muster because the language is clear that this has to be a true and legitimate transfer, just like it were a transfer to someone else. But but you still want to have your benefits protected. And some of you may be thinking, well, then why can't I just transfer it to a relative? That's another be example of, of something where... Right, and that would be subject to that look-back period or something, right? Yeah, it is subject to the look-back period, but it's much worse than that. Mm-hmm. You've put it in the hands of people who suddenly their lives and their risks and their complications have become your risks and complications. Um, if they have a lawsuit, if they have a bankruptcy... If they have a divorce, mm-hmm. then that asset will end up being divided between them and will go off into hands that you would never have intended. So I can, as a lawyer, it, I can say that among the worst things you can do is to simply transfer assets to other people's hands. Um, it's, it's just a there's so many things to go wrong that we don't have a show long <laughs> enough to describe it. And yet I think it's a pretty common thing. Uh, well, yeah, it's it's a poor man's solution, so to speak, and like a poor men's solution to a lot of things, poor men's wills, and and often they're bad ideas, and and they're certainly fraught with risk. Mm-hmm. Even if it turns out okay, it's like you know you invest in 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 some awfully risky investment, and and by the 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 skin of your whiskers or whatnot, you tend to get your money back. And it still doesn't mean it was a wise decision. And it's not a wise decision to take risks when you're planning for things so important. Remember, you can do things in your 30s and 40s and for the most part recover. I mean, you have the assets, you have the opportunities potentially to do it. You have the health mm-hmm. and you have the time. Mm-hmm. You have all these things that allow you to get up, dust yourself off and say, wow, I'm not going to do something that <laughs> stupid again. But the point is, Many of those things are gone by the time you're in your 60s, certainly in 70s and beyond, so that you can't make those mistakes and just get up and dust yourself off and recover. Uh, There may be no opportunity to recover. But the good news is by planning at the threshold, and I'm talking to all of you, by planning at the threshold, you don't have to worry about confronting those things. You can go into that period of life when arguably you're, you're most vulnerable. Remember, you're planning for your own incompetence. So it's kind of like you know that there's a good chance that you'll be far less able to do things in years ahead. So now in your clear mind, this is the time to make these decisions and to do it wisely. And then later when you will be the beneficiary mm-hmm. of this of this planning at a time when you couldn't do it yourself. Yeah, we've talked before that really planning for the future is not about just planning for your stuff. It's really planning for your care. It's planning for your life. It's not just planning for the end of your life. And right, and and estate planning is uh estate planning and, and elder law of course are related. There's an overlap mm-hmm. because Many estate planners do some of the things elder lawyers do, and many elder lawyers do the, the things that estate planners do. So um, there is an overlap, but, but there's clearly a difference in emphasis. Uh, historically, if you went to an estate planning lawyer, historically your focus was on, gee, I want my stuff to go to the right people, and I want them to get it in the right form. So that's estate planning in the classical sense. Wills, trusts for your minor children— 
uh, or your dissolute children, as mm-hmm. the case may be. But but elder law was different. Elder law came along. It was formed as an area of practice formally in in the early nineties. And and elder law's intention was to focus on that last. I call it the last third of your life. That period of time when things are different. The rules that applied in part one and part two do not often apply in part three. They are not the same rules. And so you don't use the same strategies. And and so people who who are about to enter what should be and can be the very best years of their life, they need a, a practitioner, a professional, who is devoted to putting in place the the financial tools, the mechanisms uh, by which they can live the best lives possible during that period of time. So that's the primary focus. And then, of course, certainly we do the planning for thereafter. So don't get me wrong. At part of a client being happy in the, the final third of their life mm-hmm. is about knowing that, that when they pass, the things they want to happen are going to happen. So, so certainly estate planning is a piece of that picture, but there's no question that that um, often estate planners have failed to give the attention that is needed to this critical period in the end of people's lives. And we talked just a little bit earlier, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the program, but we wanted people to um, do this at the threshold, start, start early. Is there ever a time where you go ahead and go, oh, you're, now I'm 75. Is it, can you still do some estate planning? Can you still do some planning? Even if you're older and maybe, maybe you don't have five years. Maybe you're pretty sure you're not going to have five years. But is there still benefit to doing it no matter when? Yeah, and there are other options. Uh, there, and so whenever someone comes in, we look at their situation, and then we decide what tools in the toolbox are applicable to this circumstance. And for example, in the situation where there's not a five-year period of time, there are some other things you can do. So I don't want people to think that that they're they're helpless, but to just hand their checkbook to some provider of long-term care. There are other things you can do. For example, there's a Medicaid-qualified annuity, and this is an annuity that, if it's created correctly, and and that's let me emphasize that if it's created correctly, there are about six prongs that have to be in place. Mm. The the Supreme Court ruled, and then the legislature ruled in Missouri for this to qualify, as well as meeting the federal test. Uh, but it means that when you spend the money for it, you immediately qualify. So that asset's gone, and then you have a beneficiary, which can be, for example, the community spouse, the spouse who will not be going into long term care, who will receive the annuity income. So that money is not being used for purposes of paying for long-term care. That's an example of something where there is not the look back. There are a few other things. There are forms to spend down. So uh, the quick answer to your question is is it's never too late. It's never too late. But it it also is true that the sooner you do it, the better – but but by no means should you not do it at all thinking you've waited too long. <laughs> There's always something that can be done in, in, in the form of planning to help you as you age. Are there any other things just that we should think about in terms of ways to pay for long-term care? We've talked about government benefits. We've talked about um, private pay. We've talked about um, some of those other options. What about like veterans benefits? Well, there are VA uh, benefits can be huge. Um, Aid and attendance is something that gets very little attention, I'll tell you. As a matter of fact, it's considered a um, pension benefit. If you call in, if you called, for example, the hotline, say you're a veteran and that you would otherwise qualify, and you ask about help 
paying for long-term care, you probably will be told that they don't do that. And this is a very little publicized program. I'm a little cynical. I believe the reason it's poorly publicized and the reason it's categorized as a pension is to minimize the number of people who are submitting applications for it. But aid and attendance is only available to people who served some period of their service full-time was during a time of war. Now, that is a broad definition. You Mm -hmm. don't have to be out of the United States, and it only has to have been one day. And that one day can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the United States. It can be in the United States, but it can be anywhere. And in times of war are defined pretty broadly. Hmm. The Gulf War period, which began, what, around 90 mm-hmm. or 91? About 90. That, last time I checked, that period was still running. Oh. So, so it wasn't just that Gulf War that we had in yeah, the early 90s. Exactly. So, so think about the fact that, that there are a lot of people who are in during some period of time in the Vietnam War. Um, Korean War, there's still some World War II vets out there. We're mm-hmm. losing them all too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a wonderful benefit where you can get up to $2,300 a month in assistance for your costs of, of health benefits or health care. And uh, a surviving spouse can get up to half that, like 1200 bucks or so. So it's a wonderful benefit but you have to make application for it, and many people don't realize that it's out there. It's called aid and attendance. That sounds like a lot of really good information. I had no idea that some of that was there. And I feel like this is a little bit sometimes like like a scholarship for college or paying for college expenses. You kind of hobble together and cobble together just a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here sometimes. Yeah, it is difficult to know what your options are out there. So it is an area where you need to talk to professionals and not just lawyers, you know, financial advisors and others. But But it's such an important period of your life. It's a shame that many people do not give it the attention they should in terms of planning. So time has gone fast. Uh, Have we been through an hour? We have been through an hour already. All right. Well, we covered a lot of material. Till next week, another episode of Elder Talk. Take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.